The following is a hoop ball presentation. Yo, 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 and welcome to a special round ball ramble intro. That's right, I had the great privilege of recording last night with Garrett Bouguet, friend, host, and founder of Duncan Dynasty, fellow SBC alum. I can go down the line of my boy Garrett, but we had a great time covering an exhilarating Phoenix Suns win over the Clippers, as well as talking about the NBA draft lottery, the results, and its implications on various teams. So definitely make sure to enjoy a fun conversation. Go in-depth for just under an hour. This is a show that is pretty packed. So, uh, you know, enjoy it. It's a nice uh, Wednesday morning. So uh, make the most of it. Have a great week or continue to have a great week. And you know how we do. I will talk to y'all tomorrow. <laughs> All right, y'all. I feel like saying the future self and Gary Bouguet, even though it's past self, take it away. Yo, yo, yo. Welcome to a simulcast edition of Round Ball Ramble and Duncan Dynasty. Yes, that is right. Two great podcasts are meeting on a night that actually deserves it. So very excited to have on my partner, friend, co-host, run down the list, SBC alum, host, founder of Duncan Dynasty, alongside myself, Garrett Bouguet. Find him on Twitter at Garrett Bouguet. Check out Duncan Dynasty at Duncan Dynasty. Got myself, core MBA, simple on Twitter, hoopballhoop-ball.com on Twitter at hoopballtweets. Make sure to check that out. But honestly, we have so much to talk about without a moment further. Garrett, how you doing, bro? I mean, we're doing this right now. It's, it's live. <laughs> Yeah, I'm doing great. It's it's fun to do our first ever simulcast together. Yes, sir. Uh, you know, we we had discussed this a few days in advance of doing this, and mostly because of the the draft lottery happening. But then we we decided, hey, you know, there's going to be a game that night as well. Might as well, what might as well break that down. And then what a game it was tonight. <laughs> You said it, man. What a decision. And I got to give you full credit on that one, too. Because I was like, oh, draft lottery action, cool. And then the game, I wouldn't have any words. And and wow, what a game. I mean, we got to go into, first off, by saying the Clippers have the Suns right where they want them. I mean, based off this playoff so far, I think we can both agree. <laughs> I think we, and the joke, I'm sure has been made multiple times, you know, but I was already thinking as well, like, this is where the Clippers are. This is their sweet spot. This is their comfort zone. But they did go down. Uh, in a thrilling, I mean, okay, thrilling when the rest were involved, <laughs> a victory, <laughs> a chippy game, a grimy game, 104-103, the Phoenix Suns pull out to hold home court and go into LA leading two games to none. And honestly, there are so many different directions we can go with this. I, I feel like we got to start with just how slow and ultimately cold all night the two stars were between Devin Booker and Paul George. Yeah, I think one of the the interesting decisions that Ty Lue made in this game is the right off the bat with the starting lineup adjustment, taking Batum and Mann out of the starting lineup, inserting Zubach and, and Beverly. And I think part of the rationale with that for Lou was he wanted one of Beverly or Mann on Booker for the entire night. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Beverly played what is probably his uh, playoff high in minutes in this game with 26. He obviously disrupted Booker. He's a great defender. Uh, he, he had a foul called on him in, early, in the early going where Booker went in for a layup and, and uh, Beverly blocked him and they called it a foul, but I thought it was a clean block. He, mm-hmm. he constantly poking the ball away, going for steals, just keeping Booker off of balance. And of course he also had the play where he reached in and, and didn't get the ball, but got Booker's nose. And uh, that caused Booker to miss a, a good chunk of the end of the third quarter, but yeah. that adjustment from Lou and, and really forcing uh, Booker to deal with two of their better defensive players, uh, perimeter defenders all game long made an impact and and sort of turned this what was a very offensive game one into a defensive fight in game it really oh exactly i'm sorry for cutting you off. i was gonna say exactly what you said like the, the the philosophy there and the game plan was sound in that way but you did take away some of the offensive connectivity um mainly by taking out batum but by kind of changing up the lineup in that way and you're right it it did work um booker was ice cold 
pretty much all game. I mean, he had some clutch shots peppered in the third and, and the fourth. And you're right, Beverly did what Beverly does. You know, you're always going to have one solid defensive play that he does that he doesn't get the credit for, one sneaky play that was a foul that he does get the credit for, and one shady play where somebody gets injured that, you know, was a basketball, wasn't a basketball play, but wasn't not a basketball play. It was just a reckless Beverly play. And, and all three happened in the span of this game. You even had, I call it the LeBron special, where toward the end of the game, you know, the rest reviewed a poke of the ball from Booker's hand by Beverly that, that Beverly knocked it out, but Booker was the last one to dribble. It was that weird play a couple years back. Beverly got the call doing the exact same thing as LeBron actually last season. I think it was like one of the games Christmas or just after. Um, and the same exact play happened. So you had you had the full experience of Pat Bath, but uh, you also had the full Paul George experience, I guess, on the other side. Yeah, and I got to give credit to uh, whoever was the producer on this broadcast for finding an audience member in the crowd who is wearing a T-shirt with Steve Nash and his bloody nose from the 2007 Conference Semifinals. And it was a very similar play where Nash had, had a nose injury and a bunch of blood. And they couldn't get it stopped in that game where Nash was actually defending on the play. And like Beverly reached in on Tony Parker, missed the ball. And as you're reaching in, you know, you're moving your head towards the, the offensive player and a, a collision of, of heads, faces there. All of that. And uh, I also got a kick out of the fact that uh, at one point I read Patrick Beverly's lips uh, on a replay where he's saying to the ref pointing at his head, like I'm bleeding. It's like, well, you caused the other guy to bleed too. And probably broke his nose. Exactly. Is this, is this where you really want to go with that Pat? Like, is this the hill you want to stand on? And yeah, even down to, as we're recording this, you know, they're not sure if it was a broken nose. At least that's what um DeAndre Ayton said after the game, like, you know, gun through whatever the case may be. And it was a great uh, Jeff Van Gundy line after Cam Cameron Johnson hit a three where he says, you know, um, Devin Booker's nose may be broken, but Cameron Johnson's jumper ain't. It was hilarious. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, man, but I, I guess going through, you know, the first half, highly contested, the two stars not really getting off. The real hero of the story for me on the Clippers side was Reggie Jackson, obviously the score. He's been hot all playoff, all postseason for the Clippers. But Cameron Payne, I put so many Cameron bringing the pain tweets out there last night, like, he was on fire, and he had he had the most points he's ever scored in his career in an NBA game. He constantly was able to get to the basket, you know, past uh, Paul George, um, past Reggie Jackson, whoever he was on, and finishing around the rim and setting up some beautiful feeds for DeAndre Ayton and other bigs in the interior. Yeah, that uh, that was one of the things I had in my notes. You know, you, you're when you compare this Phoenix team to the the Jazz team, which the Clippers were able to to beat. I think one thing that Utah, despite playing a similar style to Phoenix offensively, where you've got the traditional center and then surrounded by four perimeter guys that can all shoot, pass, and dribble, Utah typically only drives just to kick out for another three-point shot. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, even on drives, they're typically not really threatening the rim, and the Clippers were able to just help and recover. And yes, Utah hit a bunch of threes in that series and had a good offensive performance, but you know, they, they, they weren't able to get just the super easy looks inside. Whereas Phoenix with, with Aiton, with, with, uh, you know, guys like Cameron Payne, who just does straight line drives to the basket, uses his quickness to get past his man and, and cause havoc. And, and also guys like Jay Crowder, Mikael Bridges, Cam Johnson, who are very good cutters. They don't just settle for shooting threes. Phoenix was able to, uh, you know, just uh, get, a few of those easy baskets here or there, which helped them hold on to the lead for, for most of the game until the final couple of minutes. And you're right. And time and again, you mentioned it, particularly with Cameron Johnson, but Mikael Bridges, while I observed this action by him even more so in the last series, but you're right. They're not just, they're not just stationed in the corners. They're constantly cutting, constantly moving. Um, last series, uh, Denver was trying to give him that kind of mid-range jumper. So Mikael kept, Pulling up around the mid-range area and getting a float or a jump shot in. Cameron, I mean Cameron Johnson, same thing. Getting to the basket. You're right. All this off-ball movement continues to put this defense out of flux. Um, especially defenses like the Clippers, where right now, you know, their first rotation solid, their second rotation solid. But you might get a third or fourth switch, this or that, and then the cracks start to show. Like any good defense, when it has to bend so many times before it eventually breaks. 
So, yeah, I mean, the, the Clippers definitely woke up, um, did respond, tightened up tremendously down the stretch, definitely was helped by Devin Booker being out a little longer than he would have with that nose um, contusion there. But they definitely made it a game down the stretch. And then, I mean, maybe I'm skipping too much, but then it seemed like it was playoff P time down the stretch. <laughs> well, yeah, he he definitely struggled. I think, uh, you know, the he's a guy that con- consistently takes really tough shots, even when he's got it going, even when he has a great game. It's a lot of contested step back jumpers drives where he, he uses the off arm to uh, create just enough space to get his shot off. Um, and, and in this game, the shots just didn't fall. Obviously, you got to give the Suns some, some credit there as well. And, and that's another difference when you're comparing the Suns team to the Jazz unit. There's not too many weak links defensively. So when, when a guy like Paul George just goes and isolates, he doesn't have just this huge mismatch like he may have had in the previous series. So you got to give both teams credit for stepping up defensively. And the, the centers, I think, are a big part of the story here as well. Zubach playing 34 minutes in this one. Lou clearly thinking, okay, we just need more defense without Kawhi Leonard and with maybe Marcus Morris not quite 100%. We can't just continue to do small ball all game. So Zubach had some moments. He had a really nice block on campaign in the last couple of minutes as well. But uh, DeAndre Ayton was absolutely superb, continuing his amazing postseason. And, uh, you know, I I feel like at this point we should probably start talking about uh, the the last couple of minutes because there was was a lot of drama and and intrigue. Yeah, no, no doubt. I mean, where do you want to go with this, like, in terms of chronological order? Because your boy jumps around over here. Yeah. So yeah, let's, let's, let's go in chronological order and start with that. I mean, unless you have some, some better play that you want to talk about earlier, you feel free to bring it up, but I would like to start with the, uh, the play with the Suns down, uh, down one with the basketball. I think they had around, uh, uh, this was after Paul George put the Clippers up one with a a mid-range jumper. Yeah. Devin Booker on the right wing in isolation going at uh, Patrick Beverly and Beverly with his left hand reaches in, pokes it out of bounds. And we had a replay Corbin and, and uh, Jeff Van Gundy on the, uh, on the broadcast was talking about it. And I definitely agree with him that, uh, you know, they've got to start, they've got to change the replay rule there where it should be whatever player causes the ball to go out of bounds that's who it should be off of as opposed to really you know uh, zooming in and focusing on oh well he pushed it towards the out of bounds but then it grazed Devin Booker's right palm right before it goes out of bounds it's just uh, yeah for 46 minutes that call is Suns basketball every time and it's just frustrating that in the last two minutes that all of a sudden changes no 100% I I think we give a shout to the real you know, heroes of the story, uh, namely the refs, you know, the entire last four minutes probably was 40 minutes in real time of just excruciating replays. And it really started with, it started a little bit before this play, but this play was like the, the focus of it. Um, actually all that, that after the next play top was probably really where it really gets kind of crazy, but you have for a veteran crew, this is a conference I was talking about. There was a lot of in turning themselves in the story, kind of making themselves the eye of it. Because you look at it, and if you have to analyze it that deeply, it's almost like when you have a call that you call something, and then you look back and go, well, actually, this call was caused because of this call that we missed. So let's do that first and rectify that. It, it, it's, it's, it's not solving the problem. It's just like creating a, a different solution. Um, or in that, in that kind of vein where, yes, the ball technically, if you want to go that way, grazed off of Booker's hand. But who poked it out? The theory of it is when you're dribbling the ball, you're dribbling it hits your hand this way, and you get hit. I'm sorry, I'm describing this, guys. I'm dribbling the ball with my hand in an up and downward motion, and the ball gets poked away. Nine times out of ten, it's still going to pass my hand unless it was in between dribbles. That's just how that works. So when you look at it, it was poked out by Beverly. Real-time poked down by Beverly. So to a crawl, take 10 minutes, look at it with each individual grain of the ball, and then you can see that it was off of Booker, but only because it was knocked out by Beverly. So when you have to go to that level of minutiae, at a game, just for context, y'all, a brief behind-the-scenes little 
podcast like study notes me and Gary was supposed to record like half an hour ago by the time we got down with this a lot of this thank you scott foster was because a place just like this where it's actually detrimental in, in, in trying to be right in trying to get the right call you were actually setting a bad precedent or the wrong call long term yeah that's a great point you make that not only does you know um does judging it in terms of okay we're gonna we're gonna zoom in and see okay did it graze off of booker's hand not only does that like you know it's against sort of the uh the 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 way that should be called because again it's 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 a beverly who is forcing the ball to go out of bounds but then yeah it it takes a lot longer to do that to make that call then because you have to again zoom in and and look at it under a microscope. So yeah, it not only not only just changing and and telling the referees, okay, just figure out, okay, who who is the reason this ball went out of bounds? Exactly. And call it that way. And you, again, you you sometimes see officials do that. So I I, I often note when there's like kind of an over the back call that isn't uh, isn't called a, a foul on the floor, and they go and look at it and say a guy uses his hand and and hits it off the other guy's hand out of bounds. The referees a lot of times have just said, okay, well, we, we didn't call the over the back. So we'll just give it to the team that, you know, yeah. have the basketball here. Mm-hmm. Make uh, up our wrong choice by making exactly. This is makeup calls. Yeah. So, so that's what they should do here. Beverly clearly not was the reason the ball knocked out of bounds. Booker didn't try to touch the ball again. He, it just, you know, that's how it works. As you said, nine times out of 10, it's just going to graze your hand in that mm-hmm. situation as the ball handler. Exactly. So, yeah. That was frustrating. The other big uh, long review that happened a few minutes earlier was the whole play with Zubach and Aiton along the sideline. And I actually think they, they got that call right from what I saw. It, it almost looked like, uh, from from the the one angle we really got there, that Aiton, as he was going out of bounds to try to save it, hits it back towards the court with his right hand, but yeah. then hit it into his own left hand that then knocked the ball out of bounds. Definitely. No, 100%. That's exactly how that happened. And that replay, while it did take a while, and while it was kind of excruciating in that moment, it ultimately used the right call. Because at the time, there's a key back and forth possession. The Clippers needed the ball to, you know, have some kind of control over the game. And it made sense, even though it took way too long. You know, from that was like the opposite of what we just saw. Real time, it was off of Zubach. Looking at it later, it was clearly off of Aiden. Calls like that, if those were the norm, it wouldn't have been an issue. But because they were not, and rather the unfortunate exceptions, is why we had the issues that we did. Yeah, so when uh, when that call goes the Clippers' way with the ball going off of Booker, the Clippers are up one with uh, you know very little time left on the clock, and the Suns are forced to foul. They foul Paul George with seven point eight seconds left, and all of the uh, the critics of Paul George now uh, <laughs> their voices are being heard again because he had an opportunity to put the Clippers not only up two, but potentially up three and force the Suns to take a three-point shot. But instead, not only misses one, but misses both free throws, which put the Clippers in a precarious situation where they had to defend and not only defend the three-point line, but defend the entire court. Yep. And that was unfortunate. I mean, Paul George, I almost want to give him some credit because Yes, they had a bad shooting night. So did Devin Booker. But Paul George and the Clippers, by extension, have been playing basically every other game, every other day for almost a month now, right? Like fatigue at some point sets in. You know, Paul George was, he just seemed tired all game. He was stumbling and tripping all over himself, sometimes in the pursuit of fouls, sometimes just tripping over himself. So I'm not surprised that at that point of the game, you know, when he missed the one, it was in and out. When he missed the other, it was one of those mind things where I had no chance. Think 1995. I know deep take here. Um, Nick Anderson, you know, those free throws and not at all the same severity, but what I'm trying to say is after he missed the first one, you could tell by the way he missed the second one that his brain wasn't even there. Like it wasn't like, okay, missed one in and out, missed the other was hard off the back rim. Like it was clearly not going in. Um, and so some of that, I chopped to fatigue, but for Paul George's tractors of which usually I am uh, partial to his uh, two seasons with the Oklahoma city thunder and my man, Russell Westbrook, you know, people were just bald on lie having fun with it, all, all of it. I think that to a certain extent, 
fatigue was a factor in this one for him. The guy was, you know, running a lot of the offense, trying to pursue, um, not pursue, but trying to manage an even greater load with Kawhi being injured. All that stuff comes into play. So I wasn't too, like, knocking on him for it. But those two free throws were crucial and honestly would have given the Clippers a three-point lead. Instead, the Suns get the ball back with the same one-point deficit. Yeah, so... Suns inbounding it with uh, with 7.8 seconds left. They use their timeout to advance it, and uh, they get the ball into Booker. The Clippers immediately double him, which that you know they've they've shown that look at at various times throughout uh, their playoff run. But really, it was uh, as far as I am aware, was the first time they did it in Game Two. Um, so Booker makes the right play, passes it to Crowder, who gets it to Bridges, who has an, a semi-open look in the corner. I think he probably would have been better off driving that baseline, forcing help, and Aiton could have been there for the lob. But instead, he takes the shot, felt like he kind of rushed it. The shot goes uh, off the rim. It's knocked out of bounds, and it goes towards the opposite sideline. And there was 0.9 seconds left after another lengthy review where they had to determine who it was off of and how much time was left. And that review was also big because it allowed Monty Williams to draw up what uh, eventually ended up being the game-winning play. I agree. That was crucial, that entire sequence. That three-point shot, at the time, it looked like Bridges was trying to draw a foul, didn't quite get there. At the time, I wasn't that upset with the three-point shot because I could see Paul George coming a little bit closer, you know, toward off the baseline, toward the corner. Thought, okay, maybe he'd be forced into a tougher mid-range shot, whatever the case may be. With that amount of time on the clock, I could see players being a lot more, you know, it's not like you have Chris Paul or Devin Booker on the ball right now. Even Mikel Bridges is very good at his role, but it's not in this terms of playmaking quick snap decisions like that. So I wasn't upset with the three. However, it did look like he rushed it even on top of that and was trying to maybe seek a little bit of a foul along the way. With you saying that, though, he definitely could have driven him a little bit, engaged George, and then made the pass. But I don't put that knock on him because of such few time left on the clock and being a one-track mind of just got to get the shot up. But because he did get up so early, it probably did give the time that was needed for the Suns to make the play that they end up having. Because with the bounce off, the long bounce, it gave it a, a shot where who knows. Um, but honestly, that's what led to the biggest play of the game. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Monty Williams, who has uh, leapt up my uh, personal coach's rankings. Yes. He's been excellent. He's been excellent all season long, building a culture, building a really nice offensive and defensive system there in Phoenix. And he has done really a really good job in these playoffs of the out of timeout calls, the ATOs. And uh, he, he drew up a nice play with, I think under right around the three minute mark uh, to get, uh, to get Mikel Bridges an open three. And then in, in this moment with them down one point nine left, he draws up a play where uh, Jay Crowder's the inbounder. Devin Booker sets a back screen for Deandre Ayton running to the rim Crowder throws a perfect lob and uh, Aiden able to dunk it through. And the, the interesting thing to me here is that the Clippers chose not to switch this action. They had Zubach on Aiden and they had Batum on Booker. And because they don't switch, you know, Booker set a solid screen on Zubach. He's just not going to be able to get through that. And that allowed Aiden to, to get that dunk off. And uh, as the announcers correctly stated on the broadcast, that uh, off of a, an inbounds throw, there's not a uh, an offensive interference or goaltending in that situation. Exactly. And, and the funny thing is, you, you mentioned this, um, and I was just seeing a little bit on Twitter that um, Monty Williams credited that, that brilliant play, like you said, the screen by Booker, the cut, all of that was stolen, he said, from um, – and get this, I thought it was kind of funny. He said, um, Brett Brown and Joe Prunty. Immortal Bucks legendary coach Joe Prunty. As I like to said a couple of years ago, playoff Joe Prunty. <laughs> Joe Prunty, what was the one that came up with that play? He said that the alley you play was a stolen from Joe from Brett Brown and Joe Prunty. So I imagine those two devised it. Um, oh, and I mean, again, this is another deep take. More for you later, Garrett. I'll share it with you. But apparently, they they linked the actual play that Philadelphia used to win a game underneath it so that's hilarious but yeah, yeah it was such a well-designed play and you're right i was thinking nba fan I'm like, oh you could take a jump shot on that time point four this or that then jeff van gundy sat on the screen you know using eight and would be nice using 
um, Booker as the as the using Booker as the decoy to free up Aiton. But the way that play was perfectly done, and really the entire sequence for me, as great a call as that was by Monty Williams, that pass by Jay Crowder yeah. was spectacular. It was on a dime, just over the basket, just under Aiden's hands. Aiden still had, and he kind of pushed and grabbed a little bit just to get past. Zubach to get up to get the ball right there and sl- that was such a tight window that was a Rajon Rondo Chris Paul type of pass from a guy in Jay Crowder who had done another great pass to Aiden earlier in the game yeah it requires three guys executing that play Crowder as you mentioned with the great pass Booker has to set a solid screen it can't be a phantom screen and then Aiden obviously with his athleticism going up and getting it but uh do you feel like Ty Lue and the Clippers deserve any, you know, criticism for how they defended that play, just given that they didn't switch that action? To me, I mean, I understand why you want to keep Zubach on Aiton because you're worried that they could just throw it up and he can catch and shoot right over the top if it's someone like Batum. But at the same time, I also think I would rather have Aiton have to make a jump hook over Batum than just be able to go up and, and dunk it through the rim. I 100% agree. I don't hold anything on them only because the threat of Booker I get was that intense. You know, they didn't switch everything. That was a knock on them, but I could see um, Batum wanting to kind of stay home there. I thought that it was such a well-done play that I don't think it would have mattered as much. It would have made it a lot tougher if they went and did that. But even with them not doing it, it still had to take the great pass a solid, you know, solid connection on that. Like you said, all three levels had to work in unison for that to happen. And it wasn't like that. I was like, oh, wide open, throw it, dunk. You know, it was a, a synchronized choreography of, of an offensive action to make that come into play. So, yeah, ideally they could have switched that, you know, definitely tested a lot better. But it was just a heck of a play. And I, at the end of the day, sometimes you just got to tilt your hat. And you could go, yeah, we could have done this, we could have done that. But, I mean, that was just... It, it was very much shades. I thought immediately as soon as it happened, Tyson Chandler a couple of years ago, uh, four years to be exact, with the Phoenix Suns, um, I think it was against the Grizzlies. Just uh, that type of play where it was just well just well done. Yeah, and, you know, obviously the, the idea that Booker is the, is the screener for Aiden there is, you know, the, again, as you mentioned, they're using him as a decoy there. They realize that, oh, the, the Clippers aren't going to want to leave Booker. But that's where, with the amount of time left on the clock, only 0.9, that's where, in my mind, you use the guy that's defending the inbounder to be a second defender on Booker. You put two on two on that guy that you're worried about getting and, and, and beating you over the top. And, and that way, then, when Booker sets that back screen, Batum can, can help and not be worried that Booker's just going to get a wide-open look if you've got that second defender. So, yeah, I... I mean, I agree that it was well a well drawn up play, well executed by Phoenix, but I, I do think that the Clippers could have done could have handled that a little bit better. Uh, but uh, you know, nonetheless, right. that gives the the Suns a, a huge one point win and a two zero series lead. And the the huge issue moving forward for the Clippers, especially if this game plan that that Ty Lue showed here in Game Two is what they want to do for the rest of the series. The whole idea of okay, we're going to keep one of Beverly or Mann on Booker for all 48 minutes. Well, as soon as Chris Paul comes back, you know, then they can just use Chris Paul in the action against your weaker defenders. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's really not looking good for the Clippers. You can say, yeah, the, the yeah, you joked that, yeah, Los Angeles has them right where they want them down 0-2, but. Do they know? <laughs> yeah, I see what you're saying. I but, see what you're saying. You know, Chris Paul is going to be back and, and it's not going to be a Mike Codley situation where you don't know um, if he's going to be a hundred percent or playing at a high level. Chris Paul is fully healthy at this point and just came <laughs> off dominating the Denver Nuggets for four games. Yep. So, as soon as Paul is back, it's, it's really tough. And the idea that the Clippers, especially assuming Kawhi Leonard with a, with an ACL injury is not going to return Winning four out of five against this Suns team, especially if, say, Chris Paul plays four out of the next five games, he might miss one or two more. Mm-hmm. It's just, uh, you know, it's it's really not looking good. No, it isn't. I mean, you have to, like you said, the Clippers side on whether or not they get, that's 
neither here nor there only because of Phoenix's addition of Chris Paul in this series. Like you said, Cameron Payne's been playing well. I was even talking about my little brother watching this. I called him. I was like, listen, man. I said, Cameron Payne's playing bomb. I said, imagine how comforting this is. A Phoenix Suns fan to know that Cameron Payne is doing this, but you actually have a guard better than him that's coming back. Like, like that's insane. He's going to eat in the mid-range. You have that other shot guy who's fully worked himself back from that arm injury. You saw how well he just picked apart Denver. Now you have another source of, of offense that you have to account for at all times. This defense is already frazzled. The Clippers have right now. Uh, the loss of Kawhi is big, but even so, this is a different team right now. You can't hide players like you did on certain guys. You can't expect uh, certain players on the Suns team to be non-entities on the offensive side like you could with certain members of Utah. It's a different challenge altogether. And so you're right. Being down 0-2, you know, the Clippers definitely, this is their spot. This is where they usually wake up, and this is good, and it's a good story and everything. But this Phoenix team, Hey, it's not Utah. This Phoenix team is not Dallas. Like, they were number two for a reason. And of those two top seeds, Utah and Phoenix, Phoenix was easily the more sustainable one, and we're seeing why right now. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see, you know, as the the Clippers series against Dallas and Utah progressed, Lou just went smaller and smaller, and and that ended up working. We'll see if the likes of, of Morris and, and, uh, and George and Batum and, and some of those guys, Terrence Mann, if they can continue to play at a high level, uh, playing like close to 40 minutes, because I think they are going to have to play their best guys and play small more of the time. You know, I, I don't understand why Batum only played 16 minutes. Batum has been great this postseason. I think he needs to play more. And also, you know, I think, I think DeMarcus Cousins just needs to be excised from the rotation. <laughs> Yeah, I, mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I see why they have him in the game in a thought process size, whatever wise, but he's just, is he's not, he doesn't have it. He doesn't have it. He had a jolt for them in game one. And like you said, he just, him and, and maybe Rondo sometimes, although Rondo shooting the three ball very well. Yeah, the, uh, yeah, right. The theory is, oh, we can, you know, they, they the Suns play a small ball center in Sarich so we can take advantage of Cousins' size. And, and Cousins was able to score at times in game one, wasn't as effective in game two. But he's just, you know, a tire fire defensively, especially yeah. if you have a guy like Luke Kennard out there with him. Uh, you're, you're just going to get killed on that end of the floor. So in my mind, that's where uh, I don't mind them playing Zubac more, but why not put Zubac against Saric and take advantage of that matchup? Zubac playing against Aiton, you can do that at times, but he's outmatched. Aiton's a better center than Zubac is. So yeah. give Zubac some minutes where he's the best big on the court, I think would be something that, that Lou can look at. But uh, yeah, I, I personally think this is basically over at this stage, barring Barring Chris Paul missing, you know, four or five games of this series, I think this is this is likely uh, the Sun series to lose. I'm right there with you. I think they have them in that spot. The adjustments so far have all been made. I mean, the right adjustments, rather, have all been made from Phoenix. The play has been solid. Cameron Payne, there's too many weapons right now for Los Angeles to kind of focus on stopping. And the role players are smart and timely and can be dangerous as well. I mean, Jay Crowder made like two impactful plays and did not shoot the ball super well, you know, when he did. I mean, these guys, you know, Cameron Johnson, solid. Mikel Bridges, solid. You know, we all look at Devin Booker, and Cameron Payne had 29-9 and nine with zero turnovers. Like, these types of plays from here and there, yeah. I mean, you have to hope that role plays for the Clippers step up in the same way that they limit players from the Suns, and you have to account for their stars, and you have to account for their role players, it's a lot to manage, and you're a weary road-beaten team. Like, you guys have been doing this again and again. And, yeah, coming down from 0-2 is cute, but it's also exhausting, I'd imagine. And you're in the conference finals now, you know? And it's just a lot to go back from, to claw back and win in seven, claw back and win in six. Now you're trying to claw back, and each time the opponent has gotten progressively tougher. And 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 here is where it's, it, the stuff hits the fan. Yeah, and as you said, I think it's every other game for most of the rest of the series. I think maybe game seven, there's two days off. Before. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's it's going to be difficult. Plus, you've got the travel between, uh, you know, this game and, and game three, plus the travel before game five, six, and seven. So it's a tall task, to say the least. I, I had one more note just on uh, on one of the individual players, and that's Reggie Jackson. 
this guy, he's been playing unbelievably well all postseason. He probably, if if you if you were to ask me what's the one player that has improved their stock the most uh, this postseason, I would say it's Reggie Jackson. He's done hundred percent. He's done such a fantastic job of combining what he did well in Detroit, which was kind of that slashing style, uh, using his athleticism, and what he's developed as a Clipper, which is the outside jumper. He's become a really well-rounded offensive player, and uh, you know he's he's able to beat guys off the dribble. He's able to hit the three-point shot, use the threat of his shot to uh, to get to the basket and create for teammates. He has just been spectacular. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, his the way he's become the point guard that I guess and he he had elements of this in Detroit, but shot maker from all three levels. He was the most fearless driver to the basket against Utah last series for the Clippers, a team that has a guy in Kawhi and Paul George. So just saying, he's been on fire from three. He makes the right passes, nothing flashy, but solid passes, and he's a consistent threat to score consistent even um the way that uh, monty williams went shifted from putting mikhail bridges on um paul george down the stretch of the game to reggie jackson he knew who the hot person was down the stretch and who he needed to limit to keep the clippers at bay and they still came back i mean yes he has definitely raised his level i i, I still think pain obviously gets more on account of being 26 to reggie jackson's age 31 um you know and also being that guy more in demand but right now like yeah, you look at Reggie Jackson, you're like, whoa, like he went from, you know, being injured, kind of hoping to get whatever when he left Detroit to being a really solid, like went from coming off the bench, kind of back up. No, he's a starting level point guard. Absolutely. Well, yeah, was there anything else about this uh, this game or series moving forward you want to discuss before we, we get to the exciting NBA draft lottery that happened before this game? I'm about to say, that's what's crazy to me that we have something to talk about before this, like it's just a lot, man. It's just a lot. Um, no, I'm ready to get to it. Let's, let's go. Um, these games are a treat next time, you know, Scott Foster won't be there. So hopefully the rest will kind of take themselves, take a step back, but the level of quality basketball we've seen, you know, this conference final so far, at least from Phoenix and Los Angeles, um, the semifinals has really been really good basketball. And I'm looking forward to seeing more of it. Absolutely. So yeah, the, uh, the headline of the draft lottery, obviously three teams with an opportunity to get, multiple picks within the top eight that was Orlando Golden State and uh, Oklahoma City and uh, to be honest I feel like uh, all three of the teams might be a little bit disappointed in the the end results just a touch everyone nobody got the ultimate prize that they were really looking for I mean the fate for Cade didn't quite work out the way these guys expected but I mean at the end of the day no one dropped tremendously off I think that while they aren't excited well okay I mean, he did okay okay a disastrous night okay C did not get that's true that's true i mean they still have multiple picks they're just deeper than they would have wanted i think that you're right if you were okc fan hoping for this you be this year to be the year that you get that guy you're really looking at next year honestly i'm looking at the money base the year after probably just because of the way you're right that it worked out you have multiple picks they're just what six 18 they're later down the line Right. Having a best case scenario be one and five and end up with six and 18. That is not, uh, not ideal. Uh, no, no, you're fair enough. Fair enough. And then, uh, and then Orlando, they did get the bulls pick, which I'm sure they were very happy about to get that pick at number eight, but then the magic just continue to have no luck with their own picks in the lottery. They just could not move up into that top three, four range to get one of the top tier prospects. They end up with their own pick at five. And that was one of the, uh, you know, just watching the the draft lottery, the there's some, there's some pretty good comedic moments there. One of the, one of the funniest things to me was just having, uh, having some of the, uh, the representatives for the team's, be just so disappointed and and of course the camera shots go right to them right as they're realizing oh we didn't get what we wanted uh oh swing cash yes i'm so glad you brought that up uh swing cash for new orleans just absolutely oh and then and then uh yeah jeff weltman uh, the president of basketball ops for the magic when when he realized that that their own pick was going to be at five you could just see he he looked completely dejected True. And honestly, we need more of that. You know, I get it. You want to be robots, you know, 
don't really care either way. No, if you came there fully expecting, be human. I mean, your fans are definitely doing that. You know, like Orlando, I would have rather, I, I'm not going to lie, I would have liked to see Orlando with Kate. Not because, I mean, they already have, you know, Markel Fultz, Cole Anthony. They have, they have a, a crowded position. That's probably their best one aside from, well, their wings and their center. They have a deep, the team of just, average guys but if you got Cade I feel like you have a guy now that is the guy you could build around this guy and now they're going to get another guy to throw in this collection of guys um but I can imagine Orlando being kind of dejected by that uh but other than that I mean it's intriguing and I'm, I'm still uh, at least on you know getting draft guys on and talking my way my process through this upcoming like draft of these prospects here but like five's not a worst place to be where from the guys I've talked to so far is one through five. And then there's kind of a drop off. And then there's like definitely a drop off in terms of like, not a drop off in talent. There is, but in terms of them all being general, like you can pick anyone. <laughs> yeah. Uh, reading. I read uh, John Hollinger's piece that, uh, that came out earlier today uh, and, and, and talked about his top 20 and uh, 20 prospects plus three sleepers. And yeah, he, he brought up that, yeah, there, there seems to be a top five for most people. And then there's kind of also like a, a second tier of the top nine guys. And then there's another drop off. Um, wow. So yeah, that'll be interesting. And yeah, as far as golden state, obviously the, the best case scenario for them would have been their 0.5% chance of their own pick pick going up to number one the most unlikely of scenarios and then getting Minnesota's pick at four and having the the first and fourth picks. But I I think they're going to be reasonably happy. I mean, it it was an incredible long shot for their pick to move up. So they stay at 14 with their own. And then they do get the Minnesota pick, even though it's a little bit lower than they probably would have wanted it, but just getting that at number seven, a, a solid outcome for Golden State. Oh, most definitely. Most definitely. I mean, they're not, like you said, where they would have wanted to be, but you still get a chance to get healthy, retool, and get some young prospects. And honestly, you don't need that kind of guy, you know, jumping in and having that much responsibility. I mean, you can get someone easily that can kind of slide his way in, be a role player, be a star in his role, and help these guys as they try to go back to the contention. Yeah, so let's let's get to the teams that got into that top four and ended up the final order, Detroit. The Detroit Pistons getting the number one. Wow. The Houston Rockets, which again, they had basically a coin flip whether they were going to be in the top four and have their pick there or if they were going to be jumped by four teams and have their pick at five, which would then give the Oklahoma City Thunder swap rights so that they would then go from five down to all the way to 18. So Houston's wow. disaster and keeps their pick at number two. Great result for them. And Definitely. then the couple teams that, uh, that jumped up higher than expected, the Cleveland Cavaliers jump, jump up a few spots to number three. And then the Toronto Raptors, they're uh, what I think is a great opportunity for them to just kind of have one year this, this past season where they were literally not even in Toronto as a tank year and they get rewarded with the number four pick in the draft. Yeah, that's solid for them. I like, I mean, they had a horrendous year, you know, being misplaced in Tampa, you know, having injuries, having COVID hit them hard, having a job with Kyle Lowry, all of that. To get a guy that, you know, I think ideally, again, a kid Cunningham would have been a perfect fit for them and being the guy moving forward while you're not sure about Lowry for agency and Fred Van Vliet and Pascal Siakam are solid guys, but maybe not the guy to build around. Um, in this case, you want to keep the mentality and knowing how Toronto has a history of developing their players. You bring in a guy, you know, you have a Jalen Green or Jalen Suggs who could be in that range, assuming that Mobley and Kay Cunningham are gone. And those guys could be a terror in that system because the talent they already have and the system that they're going into. I mean, this is a program that has produced, you know, really good cerebral basketball players you know guys that they built up that you know through their own hard work as well it's not like players aren't just working hard but through the addition of having you know good development processes have become these great players you look at a guy like a van vliet you look at a guy like a chris boucher you know now you look at a guy who's already coming with a little bit of a pedigree from this draft add them to that and you have an interesting toronto kind of backdrop coming over here yeah, absolutely. And I think the most fascinating storyline for the Raptors with the prospects that we expect to be taken near the top is the idea that perhaps Evan Mobley falls to them at four. And the reason I think that's possible is if picks two and three, which is Houston and Cleveland draft more for fit, because Houston has Christian Wood as their center and Cleveland has, has invested in Jared Allen or will likely invest in Jared Allen. So if neither of those teams 
decides that uh, Mobley is their guy and the consensus number one, Kate Cunningham, goes to Detroit. Toronto, who has lacked a center now after the departures of, uh, of Gasol and Ibaka from last year, they, uh, they might have the number two prospect on most people's boards fall in their lap. That's very possible. I think that I look at Mobley going to Houston only because I feel that if you, I feel like Mobley, at least from what I've seen so far and like watching and stuff, like is a four. Okay. I feel like he could be a four or Christian Woods five. Now, mind you, Houston might not see it that way. You might, I mean, that might be, this is just my own opinion here. So I can see Houston going that same route. And if you saw actually, uh, Mobley was like, tweeting out stuff earlier about himself in like a Rockets jersey. So, you know, I'm not going to, you know, wishful thinking, of course, probably who knows. But with that being said, like, I think it's interesting. And I think Houston's going to be like that crossroads of where this goes, because they could go for fit, of course, ideally and say, you know, Christian Wood's our big guy, period, we're done. Or they could say, you know, Christian Wood is a five, but we think Evan Mobley's a four or vice versa and go that route. Yeah, I think that's a great point. You, you could almost say that that Wood can be the four on offense, Mobley the five, and defensively you switch that. Exactly. And then you, the five and Mobley is the four. Yep, and then you have Tata three, KP, KPJ one or two, figure the other spot, and you kind of have a position, you know? Um, and that's going to be interesting where they go with that, where they do go with another guard, where they do go with, you know, you're definitely not, you know, building around, or you are building around potentially at this point Wood and Kevin Porter Jr. So where they decide to go, and I think that's really where the most interesting choice goes, because Detroit and Kate Cunningham, they can posture all they want, but that's going to be the move. I think everyone knows that. Where Houston goes from there, I think it's going to make it very interesting with how the rest of the draft shakes out, at least through that two through six position. Yeah, so let's let's talk about uh, Cade Cunningham's fit on the Pistons. So they they obviously last year had that uh, that great draft with uh, getting Sadiq Bay and Isaiah Stewart sort of uh, in the late teens, and both of those guys showed some promise in year one. And and Killian Hayes, who I really liked going into the draft, dealt with injuries but showed some signs as a uh, as a possible playmaking point guard. But, you know, Cade Cunningham seems to, to fit in with those three youngsters pretty well. Yeah, I like that. I think that he can play on the ball, off the ball, especially with Killian Hayes there. Um, you can kind of – he has a guy in Jeremy Grant, a guy that he can kind of play alongside that you can practice kind of, you know, feeding buckets, getting that kind of correlation with not having to carry all the offensive load. You know, while still having a guy like a Mason Plumley kind of set you up, help as well. So you got some of these vets, you got these young, scrappy guys. You have a coach in Dwayne Casey who, you know, really been good with these young guys. Um, and a little bit of the from of that was from back in Toronto. We've seen a little more of that here. You're gonna get some good principles, you're gonna work. Um, yeah, I, I do like the the fit there and knowing that we can build around him long term, especially, you know, as you know, you kind of go away more from Jeremy Grant and you can kind of figure out what happens alongside Killian Hayes. And I think that between Killian Hayes and, and Cunningham, especially with the with the season that Hayes just had, I don't think it's really that much of an issue on who is going to be that guy. Yeah. So was there anything else about the the lottery, the the show itself, the presentation or just uh, what what you imagine some of these teams might do come draft time? I'm excited to see now the deep dive into the mock like drafts and stuff. Now that we have teams that they can go to, I think it's going to be interesting. Like we said, we could go with Houston to talk about that. I'm looking forward to developing my own like mock draft to kind of get that started um, just in, in force. And so I think that the excitement can really begin now that we know where these teams are going to be and can just go from there. The draft lottery always brings this irrational excitement to me. Like I am, I really have no best interest outside of like when my Lakers were in a couple of years ago, other than just being an NBA fan, but just seeing where it goes and kind of putting your favorite team that needs this player, whatever the case may be. It's always a lot of fun. And, and tonight was kind of the culmination of that. Sun Cash gave me the best reaction I was looking for. Uh, you know, um, Ben Wallace had another solid reaction I liked as well. Ultimately, happy for Detroit fans. You know, I've been seeing all over Twitter the last couple of days. Number one, number one. And they're passionate, you know, one of the more passionate fan bases out there. So it's really cool for them. It was an exciting time, not going to lie. I think it'll be better when they're all in the same room. I love just the strained awkwardness of the situation when they're all just sitting there and like the force grins when you're really not happy about something. Um, but all in all, it worked out well. I'm glad that a new team got it. This is the first pick. Uh, the first first round pick for Detroit, or the first number one overall pick for Detroit since Bob Lanier back, what, 1970. 
So yeah. it's been a while. It's been a while. And I also like the Bob Lanier got his flaws a little bit here too, because he was this pro. He was a solid low post center with a nice jump shot, uh, played for a while, you know, with the Pistons, with the Bucks. He, he was a good, solid dude. And just for, you know, I, I'm a fan of as much parody in the NBA as possible. And just mm-hmm. the fact that four out of the top five are Eastern Conference teams, I think that's good for the league. Yeah. To get a little bit more talent into the weaker conference. So, uh, yeah, I agree. I think it, uh, yeah, I, I just love the lottery because of just how absurd of a concept it is that ping pong balls are are uh, making such an impact on this. Again, the Houston thing was so crazy that, you you know, they they end up at two, but to to realize that that pick could could have been 18 is just is just crazy. The wildness of it all will never cease to amaze. I completely agree with you on that because it is indeed wild that you have, oh, because of this one pick. And that's the funny thing, too. The realization you have all these picks and all these pick swaps and all this for this and this and that, and no one even thinks about it. But then, you know, draft lottery comes and now it all makes sense. You know, now it's like, oh, well, the wildness of it all. The Warriors could have as high as the number four or whatever. They could get, you know, or they could be where they are. And if you're Minnesota, you want to keep your pick. But, you you know, and you get to look back on the trade that was made and see if that makes sense given where we are now. It's very interesting to me. Um, I, the wildness of it in that way was was pretty crazy. Um, maybe not, I think what was funny to me was not seeing the OKC domination that many predicted, but they have so many picks. I'm sure we'll see it either next year's draft or the year after. But yeah, it's just a weird, odd, funny time. And these weird pick protections and trades and swaps that come into play only make it more exciting. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, Oklahoma City has, what is it, uh, another uh, 15 possibilities at uh, some great picks in the uh, in the next like six years after this draft. But they failed to get one of the, the 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 real prime assets out of any of their draft picks this year, which is, I think, what Sam Presti is hoping at least a few of those 18 first round picks that he owns will yeah. uh, will end up being. But, uh, yeah, this was this was a heck of a lot of fun as our first simulcast with Round Ball Ramble and, and Duncan Dynasty. Yes, sir. Wrap this up for us. Yes, of course. I mean, check out Duncan Dynasty on Twitter at Duncan Dynasty. Garrett, when I'm not on, always his great host. I still think that his deep dives into the playoffs and semifinals um, were were just some of the best deep dive analytical podcasts out there in terms of really going behind the scenes and two game adjustments and and all the like. But during the off season, we have great content. It's it's fun. Just definitely make sure to check that out. I don't think it gets nearly enough love as it deserves. Also, check out Gary Bouguet by extension. Everything I said about the pod, you can say by him, at Gary Bouguet on Twitter. Yes, of course, I'm being completely subjective, but I'm also being completely accurate. So definitely make sure to check him out as well. Um, you can find me on Twitter at CorbinNBA. Check out Rumble Ramble on my hoop ball, so hoop-ball.com on Twitter at HoopBallTweets. Uh, but aside from that, y'all, it's been fun uh, for Garrett, for myself. You know, we frosty. Y'all stay frosty and, you know, have a good one. This has been a hoop ball presentation.